news. First, though, a court ruling that has to do with in-person worship. As you know, we've talked about this on the program before. However, the B.C. Supreme Court has now dismissed a legal challenge to the province's restrictions when it comes to in-person religious gatherings. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Paul Jaffe, lawyer, lead counsel representing the churches. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, what happens now? Or do you appeal this decision? Well, of course, it's still very early. We just got it yesterday, and it's a fairly lengthy judgment, uh, 60 pages or so. Um, you know, we had, we had uh, two challenges uh, within our efforts, and uh, I'm very pleased with the outcome of one of them, and that related to the freedom of protest. Uh, one of our clients uh, had been um, uh, impacted by enforcement of the closure orders up in Dawson Creek. He was organizing uh, protests, outdoors protests, and we felt that this was a very big and important part of the case, somewhat overshadowed, I suppose, by the religious issues. But the court did um, uh, did grant the relief that we sought and essentially uh, declared that the uh, orders of the provincial health officer, insofar as they uh, infringed on the right to uh, freedom of protest and peaceful assembly relating, relating to that part of the case, uh, we, we, we were very happy with the result. Um, that, that, that was uh, a big part of the case, like I say, that's been to some degree overshadowed um, by the uh, um, religious issues. Um, but with respect to the religious issues, I, I can say that we were very surprised and very disappointed um, by the judgment of yesterday, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, it didn't uh, it didn't address the main issue. Um, unfortunately, over sixty pages of careful and uh, uh, very credible uh, analysis of uh, matters such as the standard of review and the admissibility of evidence and other uh, procedural things, um, the judge did not address. What was the issue here? The issue was not uh, whether uh, Dr. Henry had a reasonable basis to impose lockdowns to the degree she did in November. The issue was whether there was any basis at all to be making the distinction between various kinds of gatherings based on the subject of discussion that might be happening within those gatherings. And what we say was the imposition of a lockdown on religious gatherings as opposed to secular ones makes no sense, either in logic or, as it was evident, uh, in the field of differing medical opinions. There was just no evidence whatsoever to support the assertion that, you know, the subject of discussion somehow affects the uh, uh, the risks of, of, of an infection. It's, it's simply not there. That's the issue. The issue was not whether Dr. Henry had a reasonable basis to impose the orders. It's whether within the orders there was a reasonable basis to make the distinction that she did. And we say that that is is clearly arbitrary and has a discriminatory effect on the churches. This judgment doesn't go anywhere near that question. And so we're quite disappointed uh, that, that it didn't. 
Um, so in the sorry in the and in your right the sixty page decision it's a lengthy decision so when uh, the uh, chief justice Christopher Hinkson writes uh, that while provincial health officer Dr Bonnie Henry's ban on in person worship did constitute an infringement on religious groups charter rights to freedom of religion the infringement was reasonable based on the range of options open to the province does that miss the point as to what you were arguing. Yeah, it misses the point completely because the range of options that were open was to simply treat churches the same way that other uh, secular activities are treated, schools and, and, and pubs and restaurants and big box stores and retail malls and all the other gatherings of people that are not prohibited, but in respect of which certain recognized safety protocols are in place, you know, social distancing contact tracing, sanitizing, all of the well-recognized steps to keep people safe, which are theoretically in place in most of those areas, uh, can easily be put into place in churches, as, as was the circumstances with my clients. And in fact, Dr. Henry herself said in late October, just before she imposed the orders that are at issue here, she, she said at a, at a press conference, uh, she says, I, I like to remind everybody about our mass gathering order. And uh, she goes on to say, and, and we know that when these COVID safety plans are followed in settings like restaurants, event spaces, churches, temples, hotels, that we don't see transmission. So this is, this is her own concession on a point which we say is patently obvious, that um, infection risks are not a factor of the subject of discussion. They are... They are a factor of people taking certain steps. And she said herself, before the orders that were at issue, she said herself that if my clients took the kinds of steps which all of the evidence shows they've been taking, then they can conduct their services safely. So, But the judge didn't go near that. He, he simply said he looked at the data from a myriad of sources that Dr. Henry considered in the imposition of these lockdown orders and said... Uh, that uh, she acted reasonably, um, uh, and we say, well, she may well have in a, in a sort of a broad, general way, but that's not the issue in this case. The issue in this case was the, the distinction that she was making between different kinds of gatherings. And, you know, it's interesting, Jill, that you, know, you can go to a pub and watch the Canucks, and you can go to schools, and you can go to retail malls, and all of these things. None of these are expressly protected constitutional freedoms. But freedom of religion and freedom of peaceful assembly are there in black and white, codified as as fundamental freedoms. And if a, if a government's going to interfere with those, they have a pretty tough onus to prove that that interference is a reasonable um, limit. And that's another thing that uh, uh, we're very concerned with this judgment because it sends a, a very troubling message to governments um, one of the things we argued was that the orders at issue should be characterized as laws of general application. Um, these, this, these laws apply to everyone in D.C., just like a regular law would if it's enacted through a legislature. You know, it, it starts as a bill, it gets tabled a few times, debated, then it gets proclaimed into force, it becomes an act. If, if, this, if the orders had come through that way, according to the judge's reasoning, the Crown would have had a very tough test to meet under Section 1. But because these health orders were um, 
um, uh, proclaimed into force by an unelected uh, bureaucrat who has really no accountability at all to the electorate, no transparency, can exercise their own discretion. Uh, we're not saying uh, anything wrong with that. A lot of functions of government are, you know, a lot of government powers are exercised through delegate, delegated uh, people. We call them statutory decision makers. But according to the analysis of the judge, the test they have to meet is not as onerous as, as primary legislation. It's subordinate legislation, and according to the analysis of the judge, the unelected bureaucrat does not face the same test as a, as a, as a legislature does to defend um, enactments which infringe charter rights. And we say this sends a very troubling message to governments that, that they need not... Uh, well, one way to sort of get out from under a charter challenge is just have their laws enacted through unelected bureaucrats. And that's, that's a message that's far beyond the, the immediate issues uh, of the case. That, 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 to me, is a very troubling message that uh, the reasoning of his lordship in this case may be sending. Uh, Keith Baldry, uh, our colleague at Global, uh, tweeted out uh, in response to the ruling that in-person religious services in B.C. have sickened 180 people and led to at least one person's death. Uh, is, does that go to the argument, though, as to why the decision was made uh, that churches, that in-person worship is still banned where other parts of the other parts, other areas are still open? Uh, no, not at all. Um the, the there's two 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 concerns I would have with that general comment of Keith. One is um, there's a whole slew of 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 different activities as between numerous religious activities. It's general sort of um, uh, you know Keith's comment sort of reflects the stereotyping of religious people. There's some services that are conducted safely and some aren't. Uh, if, if the numbers, if the infection rates were a factor, um, we would be looking at other activities where the data is far more compelling of significant risk. You know, you have tens of thousands of people whose infections can be traced to other activities infinitely more serious uh, than any numbers that may trickle out from the general phrase of, of, I think it's the phrase related to religious activities, um, they they are in terms of gatherings, uh, uh, way less than. Well, put it this way: uh, Statistics Canada, uh, when it has measured the um, uh, outbreaks, they call them outbreaks. These are uh, infections that can be traced to certain events. Ninety-nine um, percent are associated with uh, schools and uh, uh, retail malls and other kinds of gatherings, less than 1% is called the other category. And when it, within the other category, the churches are, are there somewhere. Um, they are so infinitely small, sort of on the, on the radar screen, that... Uh, 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 you know, you, you you can't. Nobody nobody on the on the data could make a credible claim that, um, that you know that that there are serious serious risks. Of course, any gathering in which any infection risk is present must be addressed. But there's a there's a world of difference between gatherings where safety measures are taken, 
uh, as as they have been with my clients, and, and those gatherings where there are no safety measures in place. All right. Uh, and whether those are religious or educational or retail or at the gym or at the pub, uh, we say what's important is that safety measures be taken. And once those are in place, it's no business of the government to interfere with the subject of discussion and especially to interfere with gatherings that have specific codified religious and peaceful assembly constitutional rights. All right. And unfortunately, like we say, that's a question which this judgment um, didn't address uh, All right. as, we ra- as, as we raised it. Paul, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for making time for us today. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Joe. Well, yesterday, senior reporter Janet Brown brought us this story. The Surrey Police Board providing the information about Norm Lipinski's salary. His base salary is 285000 a year, and the board says his potential rewards could be nearly 335000 a year. The board says it undertook an examination of police executive compensation across the country to establish our philosophy and structure. It says the chief and three deputy chiefs aren't the highest paid in the country, but they aren't the lowest either. By comparison, according to the National Police Federation, an assistant RCMP commissioner equal to a chief would make about 220000 a year if achieving all benchmarks. Vancouver's police chief for the year ending 2019 made 363000 Janet Brown, Global News. Let's bring in Jack Hundile, a Surrey City Councillor, to talk a little bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, we wanted to, to discuss this with you. I know you've been on the show before talking about this and making it clear that this isn't an attack against Norm Lipinski or anything uh, that should be negative towards him, but the bigger picture of what this is going to cost, and I think a lot of questions that Surrey residents might might have. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, we know the recruitment time frame for the chief was very, very short and quick. Um, you know, in other areas, it takes up to six months, like uh, similar to what West Van just did recently when they hired a chief. And in Surrey, they were able to do it in, uh, you know, in a matter of, of weeks. Um, and the same thing goes for the deputy chiefs. So when we look at the process in its entirety, it's not just about the the chief and the deputy chiefs they've hired. It's uh, the entire process is rushed, and it feels like it's trying to meet that that timeline, uh, the mayor's timeline, until the well, before the next election. Uh, it also, I, I think, people might do the the quick math, and if you look at it, and again comparing to some other police agencies and other forces, as, as Janet mentioned there, uh, if you look at the the chief and the deputy chief salaries, uh, they're looking at, at putting out about a million dollars a year potentially in salary. Yeah, absolutely. And if you take that million dollars today and put it into even the RCMP that we have here in Surrey, um, just imagine how many more police officers you get on the on the more boots on the ground here today compared to uh, an ongoing cost like this. And we don't really know what the end in, in, is in sight yet. There's been no uh, organizational chart provided yet. There's been uh, no plan. And certainly uh, one of the big deficits I see, which they haven't able to fill yet, has been there hasn't been adequate um, personnel brought in to, to deal with the change management component, which is absolutely huge for something like this. Uh, are you hearing from from residents or are you hearing from from people are they ca- contacting you on council asking about this yeah, absolutely and and not only through emails that we're getting but on social media the questions are all there for everyone uh one of the residents did a quick comparison said look you know we're paying um 40 more 
for a police chief compared to what we have today uh, for someone that's really not managing any boots on the ground. Um, So, I mean, those are hard pills for the taxpayer to swallow. Uh, what do you say then to uh, the board putting out, uh, they, they've put out uh, the comparison charts and and justifying this by saying it is competitive and we wanted to make sure uh, that they were getting somebody who was very qualified and who would be a good police chief? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, good on the board for doing that. I think there there should be more open and transparent communication. It shouldn't take FOI requests or requests put in by, by reporters to get the information out, first of all. The uh, the other really key piece with that is as we're, um, you know, um, getting uh, sort of this justification for why we're doing this today, um, we really don't know what we're getting because all these individuals, where the vast majority are, are all coming from the RCMP. And, you know, the, the mayor said very clearly early on, you know, we want to get away from that culture. But yet what you're doing is hiring people coming back, um, you know, sometimes on their second or third um, pensions to put this thing together. Uh, you talk a bit about transparency. Uh, do, do you see a big difference in what uh, information the people have had about the RCMP in Surrey uh, for the past, well, for the, 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 the history of the RCMP compared to uh, getting information about this new force? Uh, you know, I think there, that goes back to, I think, historically, uh, you know, every organization can and should do better. I mean, certainly the RCMP, I think, has done a uh, tremendous job in uh, bringing that transparency factor at the local level. Look, you can um, you can ask those questions very easily, get a quick response back. It doesn't have to go through uh, an FOI vetting process, um, which is often the case now uh, with the Surrey Police Board. So I just find that the information, like when I pick up the phone and I ask the question from the Surrey Detachment, like, can you get information on, say, for instance, on intersectional collisions on this? Um, you know, it's very forthcoming, very easy. And I think generally the public will find that. Um, and one of the big handicaps, of course, with this police transition has been, like I said, there has just not been, a, there's not been a clear plan. What is the plan? And people don't even know what the plan is yet. So what am I paying for? Uh, and what am I getting? It's going to be different because all we're doing now is we're hiring ex mounties and I think it is different in the case of people want to know and, and do have a right to know when it's a salary and salaries, in this case, that are paid for by taxpayers. Absolutely. You know, recently we just found even when um, uh, ourselves on council, um, uh, you know, received, uh, you know, a bonus or an increase for this year, um, you know, the public has concerns over that. Uh, in that case, you're only talking about a few percentages. Now you're adding a whole new department to the city. Um, you know, it's hard to justify that to taxpayers. Look, people have already had their taxes increased this year. You know, you've added a $300 um, levy, you know, 200 on top of an additional 100 So really, where's the end in sight here? And I think that's what the frustrating part is for people, that we are still, you know, coming out of the pandemic, hopefully here pretty quick. But there's some economic realities for taxpayers, not just in Surrey, but everywhere. Uh, is it difficult, though? I mean, on the one hand, I get what you're saying, but people will hear that and say, well, wait a minute, uh, Surrey councillors voted for that increase mm-hmm. in an in-camera meeting. There was no transparency there. It was done in private. And, and then councillors uh, were, were saying they couldn't talk about it because it was in camera. Uh, so how, how do you say we need more parent, uh, transparency with police when there's clearly an issue with transparency on council as well? And I agree with the taxpayers 110%. Absolutely, there should be that that uh, that clarity and transparency. Unfortunately, it's a majority rule in this government. 
So when the majority of council votes or acts in a certain way, uh, you sort of have to swallow it for the whole thing. Uh, what will you do then as far as trying to get more information, like you said, to even to get to this information? It was a freedom of information request. How do you change that? Uh, well, I think it comes down to if you truly want to be policing the public, um, you have to have that transparency uh, with the public. Right now we have uh, a lot of, you know, we got a lot of people on the cart, but we've got no one really, no horsepower here <laughs> to drive this thing. So how do we ask for transparency? I think, unfortunately, the sad thing is today, all we can do is FOI, um, you know, hit the questions. I know for a fact that the public's putting a lot more FOIs in because uh, they're sending to us randomly. Like, oh, here, I FOI'd this and this is what I found. Can you comment on that? All right, uh, Councillor, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for your time on this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Well, I think a lot of people are missing travel, international travel. We tend to over-romanticize it a little bit, though, uh, wishing to get back on those airplanes. Unless, of course, you're somebody that always flies in complete style. It can be stressful, and it is extremely stressful when things happen, such as your luggage is lost. Well, this next story is about a passenger that successfully sued an airline to be over lost luggage. And this case was a little bit different because of where it was held and where the arguments were made. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Gabor Lukacs, the founder of airpassengerrights.ca. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, can you talk a bit about how this kind of played out? This was a passenger. Uh, Flair Airlines lost the luggage, and it was about where it was held as far as the BC Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, instead of the Canadian Transportation Agency. Why is that important? Well, the Canadian Transportation Agency is unfortunately um, quite biased when it comes to passenger complaints. They have they used to do a great job many years ago, but over the past, uh, let's say, uh, five, six, seven years, maybe 2013, they have been going downhill. Uh, and uh, that's why the airlines always want their cases to be heard there because that's a favorable forum for them. This case reaffirms what the law has always been, that airlines cannot just contract out provincial justice. Airlines are still subject to provincial courts. They can be sued in provincial courts. They can be sued in wherever the passenger is located. They cannot just insist on taking cases to the Canadian Transportation Agency. And is this, if I'm correct in saying this, is this because of changes when we have the new, the, the air passenger protection regulations? No, no. It, it, this, this, has, this has always been that way. The requirement... You have no way of compelling a consumer to a particular forum. This is a broader issue, uh, if, especially if it is particularly favorable to one party. That's just not how the law works, especially not in BC. In, in BC, there are there are quite a lot of of uh, kind of case law on this type of uh, forum choice type of provisions, and generally the, the the parties cannot contract out the jurisdiction of, for example, they cannot. Uh, insist on referring matters to private arbitration in, in, in um, British Columbia under the Consumer Protection Act. Uh, that was actually a very, very famous Supreme Court case. Um, so um, in, in this case, it was a more straightforward matter because the contract said that, that they may go to the agency. It doesn't say that they have to go to the agency. But any provision that would try to make the agency exclusive would raise some serious legal, possibly constitutional issues. 
does it raise more questions, though, about passengers' rights? And I mean, this this was a flight. The luggage was lost. Uh, the passenger tried to claim or was saying that there were uh, books, clothing, there was hair products and such that she had to replace for necessities. Does it talk to a bigger issue of when this does happen to passengers, they have to go through these channels to get compensation? It is very troubling uh, because uh, although the law has always been that airlines have to compensate passengers for delayed or lost baggage, this was further reinforced in their passenger protection regulations, which now makes the Montreal Convention also the domestic standard for Canada. And it's quite clear, it's very well established in the Montreal Convention that uh, the airline cannot limit, for example, losses for, or damages for baggage delay to $50 per day. It's simply not permitted under the law. And Flair tried their luck. The, the troubling part is that even the very well-meaning and caring adjudicator in this case did not clue in that that limitation was contrary to the Montreal Convention. The adjudicator simply said it, it wasn't in the contract that was handed over to the passenger. It was not clear it was in the contract, so I'm not going to enforce it. But the correct resolution would have been it doesn't matter what is in the contract because the Montreal Convention is incorporated through the APPR. It is the law. It is legally binding. And therefore, uh, the, uh, it is deemed to be the terms and conditions of the contract, and they cannot impose those restrictions. Uh, so do you think this will change anything moving forward, or, or does it change anything as far as the rights of passengers when it comes to lost luggage? Uh, I, the rights have always been there. The rights have been there since 2003. I hope that this case has helped uh, to raise awareness to passengers' rights. We have on our website, airpassengerrights.ca, the information about your rights when your baggage is lost or delayed or damaged. Um, we provide step-by-step guides. So I hope that this raises the profile of uh, those kind of rights that uh, passengers have. Um, and um, I very much hope that passengers are more and more going to assert their rights in these matters because the rights are already there. They're just waiting for the passengers to file their claims. Uh, it's also great to see that the uh, BC uh, Civil Resolutions Tribunal is developing expertise in this area. It will take some time. And as I mentioned in the interview to Vancouver Sun, uh, what, is, what it shows is that, that although the tribunal member was not an expert in passenger rights, it clearly showed that they cared to do justice. And that's overall the positive development I'm seeing here. Next time they will be dealing with such a case, they perhaps may dig in more into the Montreal Convention. They will more look into that. Perhaps also the passengers will be bringing, putting forward those authorities before the tribunal. That's part of the problem that even in a, such a uh, people's court, you still as a party burn, bear the onus to prove that, uh, that you, you have the right that you're claiming and the law is on your side. So it is an educational experience for the tribunal, educational experience for passengers, the community. And overall, it shows that uh, one does not have to take all complaints to the Canadian Transportation Agency, which is lacking impartiality. And there is another forum where you can get a fair impartial hearing. That's very important and a positive news for passengers. Uh, does it seem, though, that uh, that airlines, or at least some airlines, uh, they're hoping that passengers don't know their rights and don't know what they're entitled to and maybe won't go this route? That's, uh, that's quite true. And this, this is a really a striking example of Flair 
trying to mislead the passenger this way. And I don't think the Flair is alone with that. Flair should know uh, that they cannot have such a limitation of $50 per day, uh, nor can they request receipts. Back in 2018, I was actually holding them some, uh, some training on that. So, uh, so I'm really surprised that they don't just go back to the slides I gave them at the time and, and check what the law is. We have all the authorities also on our website under our baggage FAQs. We have a wealth of case law. We've taken exactly five minutes to look it up. Hmm. It's uh, an interesting uh, case for sure. Gabor, we'll leave it there uh, for today. But thanks so much for coming on the show and talking more about this. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it is Friday afternoon and spring is just around the corner. So we thought it would be a good time to talk a little gardening. And who better to talk gardening than Wim Vanderzam, president of Artnat Plantland. And Wim is on the line with us. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Pleasure to be with you again. Uh, kind of gray and rainy out there today, but uh, I know people are looking forward to, or a lot of people are looking forward to, warmer temperatures and planting and such. What can you plant now? Well, there's lots that you can start planting now outside, but there's also some things that you should be starting to plant inside, um, like a lot of your coal crops, for example, your, your, your um, say, cauliflower, and, and if you want um, any of those um, uh, broccoli, that type of the, 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 the cold lovers, uh, you're, good to, you're, you're best to start them inside now, sow those seeds inside, and kind of get them growing uh, just two small little sprouts, and by that time, it'll be sort of uh, the end of March, beginning of April, and then you can plant them right out in the garden. But immediately, you can go outside and, and uh, you know, local garden centers have now onion sets, uh, potatoes. Um, you'll have, um, say, asparagus. Those things can all be planted now. And, the, and it's, it's better for them to plant early. Uh, they adjust. They start rooting out. And then there isn't any concerns of if it warms up too fast or they're not prepared for it. So there's things like that. And, and really, right now, um, you might even want to consider starting that list because uh, I think this year more than ever, you're going to want to get all of those items on that list early. Gardening is the new toilet paper. I don't know if that makes sense or not. but uh, <laughs> I mean, Seeds are the new toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. And so the, the, the thing is, it's... Um, it's, you know, there's going to be shortages. There's going to be shortages of grass seed. There's going to be shortages of all vegetable seeds and flower seeds and uh, bird seed. All of the seeds are going to be uh, a concern this year. So if you want a specific variety of tomato, then go get it now. All right. What about for people, too, with smaller spaces? When you're talking about those uh, things uh, that we're starting now, say if it's cauliflower or broccoli, uh, when you go to put it outside, can you do that in pots or on a patio? Yeah, so for Pots, it's a little more strategic gardening because um, you have to remember that a pot itself heats up with the, the, as the temperature warms up. So the, the, the roots of the plants will warm up. And for coal crops, as I mentioned, your broccoli and cauliflowers and such, they don't like warm roots. They like cool temperatures as much as possible. So that isn't something you'd want to plant in a pot. But you would want to plan for many herbs love the heat. Uh, tomatoes love heat. Eggplants love heat. Toma- um, uh, red and or any pepper love heat. So, so you're better, be, better to be strategic. And also strategic for a small space is going up. So if you can grow tomatoes uh, on a stake, they can grow up to six feet high. You're going to get a lot of production from a small little square footage. 
Uh, Andy Barrar, who's a, a tech guy who joins us often to talk tech. He's also a big DIY guy. And he recently built, he took a pallet and he built it on a, put it up and on a bit of a tilt and he built it, he made an herb garden. And I thought it was brilliant because exactly like you just said, it it, it takes a, a very little space, but he's now planted a ton of herbs in it. Yeah, and actually, you know what? I uh, in my book, uh, I have a picture. I I did one on my fence, um, and I built a pallet garden on my fence. And you've got all those layers that you can plant on strategically again, so the creepers uh, that are going to grow over the edge and down, they'll be on the bottom ring, and they sort of go up from there with things that sort of don't. I'm not going to trail as much, but yeah, it's a, it's a great idea. You get a lot of product in a small square footage again. Uh, You mentioned tomatoes and that tomatoes love the heat. They're also something that a lot of people, they start off great and they look great, but then I hear about people, I've had this problem, they get blight and they don't work out. Is there a trick to growing tomatoes? Um, For sure, there's there's lots of tricks to to growing tomatoes and and growing anything. There's always these little things and nuances that you should probably learn or or, or research a little bit uh, if you're going to grow in any large quantities. But tomatoes, they do get a blight. Um, um, And that is something that is the end of season when all these crops start ripening ripening up and then you lose the crop. Usually we recommend if you can kind of cover with a dry cleaner bag, come the rains of fall when things are sort of in their final ripening stages, uh, that does the tomato plant well with helping to ripen the tomatoes with that little extra heat, but also prevents rain from spreading the virus through the plant. Um, and one other thing with regards to tomatoes, because they are the number one crop that is grown in uh, British Columbia, um, that if you add a little bit of lime to the soil, say um, a quarter of a cup of lime with each tomato plant that you plant mixed into the soil, that will prevent a calcium deficiency, which causes another problem towards the end of the season as fruit starts ripening, and then you get this big black blotch in the tomato, sunken into the base of the tomato, uh, makes the tomato useless. But it's really, really easy to prevent with an organic lime that really uh, benefits the plant in so many other ways as well. Phone lines are open, star 989-8604-280-9898. My guest is Wim Vanderzam. He is the president of Artnap Plantland, and we are taking your calls, your questions about all things growing. And Wim, I already have two people uh, that uh, have reached out asking about moss. Uh, Stephen wants to know what type of lime is used to prevent moss in your lawn. And Patrick says there appears to be a lot of moss in the yards this year. Both Rona and another store sold out of moss out, and the people they're also saying there seems to be more this year. Do you know about that? Yeah, so it was a very mild winter, um, and moss likes cool temperatures and likes lots of moisture. Well, that's our that was our winter this year. So moss is going to grow through the winter and thrive through the winter with the winter we had. So now is definitely the time to start considering uh, taking some action to control it. One of the things we, well, there's two things that you need. Lime is important and moss killer is important. Um, the lime itself, you're putting down to correct the pH level of the soil so that it kind of creates the conditions of the soil that the, the, the moss does not like. It It likes acidic soil. So that will help to slow down its growth and maybe even control it a little bit. But to get rid of what's there, you're going to have to use a moss control. Um, some are, as I said, there's a lot of things that are going to be uh, – uh, unavailable this year um, or, or in high demand and probably uh, hard to come by. And one of them is moss out. That's a liquid hosen style. But there will be lots of the granular form of moss control. You apply either of those. It doesn't matter, whichever one you can get. They're both as good as each other and they're safe to use. 
They're basically just iron, which also is a reminder to maybe just sweep off the driveways or, or walkways because it does it will leave a little rust stain if you if you don't sweep it off right away. But anyway, it will it'll wipe out moss quickly and safely around pets and all the rest. So uh, you just want to make sure you use it when you're going to get a day or two of dry weather after application. All right, sounds good. Let's go to uh, Marion on the line. Do you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, Wim, I think I heard that the old-fashioned impatience are making a comeback. Is that true? Yeah, so there's a downy mildew that has sort of crept up from uh, the southern states. And basically what it does is kind of mid midsummer. Uh, all of a sudden, it just uh, comes in. You, you don't know it. You wouldn't see it. It's in the air. It's an airborne disease and basically lands on everything. But it will take out impatience. Um, they are making a comeback because this, this um, disease seems to be sort of uh, waning a little bit. So uh, you might be able to tr- uh, grow impatience this year without that cons- concern of losing the midsummer. But there is also now a couple of strains of uh, resistant to the downy mildew disease uh, impatience. So you, you will have options there as well. Okay, thank you so much. All right, thanks. Uh, thanks for that question, Marion. Let's go to Evo. What is your question? Oh, good afternoon. Uh, my question is I was working on the garden this morning and I have raised beds. Um, to On the top of the beds, on top of the dirt, should I add... Um, good old-fashioned manure, or should I add uh, well-decomposed compost that I've got in the compost box? I always say the more variety you have in any of your growing conditions, but particularly for vegetables, um, I, you know, the more the more variety, the better. Peat moss, compost, any manure, any of the manures are good. I personally like mushroom manure. It seems to be a little more porous. Uh, which allows aeration in the soil, just makes it better for uh, easier for the plants to grow roots through the soil. Uh, so add more variety, um, and and you'll have success. But if you if you are only going to get add one thing, add manure. That's going to benefit almost all of your crops, and I'm just going to say almost all your crops because um, any root vegetables, carrots or beets, um, any any anything that grows sort of the the, the crop underground does not like a lot of uh, nitrogen, which is um, base, uh, the fertilizer that's based in the manure. So don't uh, don't use manure where you're going to grow the root crops. And by the way, any anyone with a three syllable name like Evo, I tell you, I love three syllable names. <laughs> Same number of letters, a whole lot more syllables. <laughs> okay, sorry, three three letters. Sorry. <laughs> Let's go. What a way to ruin a, a good joke. <laughs> uh, Dave is on the line from South Surrey. Dave, what's your question? Uh, my question to him is, uh, is there a use for used coffee grounds in the, in the garden? And second quick question, uh, strawberry varieties and the best time to grow them if you want to get fruit if, by this summer. Thank you. Sure. I think he did say strawberries, right? Yes. Okay. So, yes, coffee grounds in, in the garden, everywhere. You can put them everywhere. It's fine. There's nothing that really is going to impact anything. It's just a good way to dispose of them, and they will compost as well. Again, everything in moderation. Don't just keep piling it up in one area. Spread it everywhere if you can. Even on the lawn, it's fine. Uh, spreading it on the lawn is a good way to get rid of them. Um, strawberries, um, get any variety that is, and this is my personal opinion, um, but I personally don't like um, TriStar or the uh, look for a day neutral variety. Day neutral just means it will continually flower 
through the season. You don't necessarily get the huge, big strawberries that you get from June bearing. What you get is a continuation of strawberries right till fall. So it just is a nicer way, you know, for a small family or a couple or whatever. It's just uh, it's, it's, it's nice to have, you know, a little bit of fresh strawberries in the garden every once in a while. All right. Uh, we got uh, this question from Janet. Uh, Janet needs to know, how do you get rid of black spots on rose bush leaves? Well, black spot is a fungus disease. Um, you know, I grow roses and I never have black spot. And I don't really do much except give a little fertilizer in spring. Um, and and probably why I don't, and, and almost with any plant, the more variety of soil uh, and and good soil in a in a big hole uh that this a rose bush or any plant can grow in the better results you'll have and also the more disease resistant the plant will be because it will never struggle it'll never suffer it's getting everything it needs it will never have these uh drying out periods because it it can't grow roots into hard pan of soil so always dig a big hole when you're planting anything because um, it's gonna for the little extra cost and a little extra muscle work uh, it pays dividends long term, but I, I would suggest, um, uh, you know, if now if if there's anything you can do, it'd be mulching the area around the root base again, so that it doesn't stress out from any of the of the uh, temperature variations or or water variations throughout the the growing months of summer, and particularly when they're blooming. All right, uh, and I got another email question from Stephen. We always have to have at least one question about this. Uh, Stephen's asking, what is the best product to get to rid of the European chafer beetles in the lawn and when? Well, I think the easiest now is to apply the uh, the Scots uh, grub-out. It's, um, it's a chafer beetle um, product. It's safe to use. It's a bacteria um, but you don't have to time it so carefully as you do the nematodes. Now, the nematodes are great, too. You just have to keep your, your lawn moist after you apply the nematodes, which is done sort of mid, mid-June. But what you want to, you know, but this, this new Scots product, again, being that it's a natural product, um, you can apply it in, oh, June, July, August, and it will take care of the problem. Uh, and it's, and it's, and it works, and it definitely works. So uh, it's a little on the pricey side, I think, but it's sometimes, you know, repairing a lawn and the damage that can be done by the crows and skunks and raccoons and everything going after the chafer beetle larvae, you know, that this, it'll be worth it. <laughs> yeah, there's still such a, uh, such a big problem. So I, I'm not surprised we got another question uh, about that. Uh, number one thing, if somebody's not a, a great gardener, what, what's kind of the fail-safe if you want to start gardening vegetables? Oh, Wow, uh, fail-safe. Any of the any of the leafy vegetables, I would say, you're going to have success. They're they're quick to germinate, and it's a short crop. Uh, uh, it ripens or ripens. It, it it's available for harvest in in very short time frame. Um, you know, tomatoes. Again, anything you're growing in, if you can, if you're growing in containers, the bigger the container, the better. I always sort of have to say that because um, if you're trying to grow in too small an area, the, the plant will struggle. It won't grow enough roots, and it will the pot will heat up, and it's just not a great. It won't offer great success. But any of the leaf vegetables, if you want success, guaranteed success will be uh, you know your lettuce and your spinach and all the leafies. They're easy to grow. All right, Wim, thank you so much. That half hour flew by. Thanks for joining oh, us and okay. happy spring. Happy spring, my best, the best time of the year for sure. <laughs> thank you, Jill. Best to everybody.